Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. All right. Good morning, Beacon Church. Good to see you all. I'm so glad to be here. I've had a chance to meet so many of you. Uh, I hope I get to meet more of you today and in the, in the weeks to come. So really glad to be here. This has been an amazing morning already. Yeah? I, I mean, just with the worship. Yeah, that's okay. We can, we can clap for that. What an awesome celebration of what God is doing in, in Amit's life and as we worship together as a community. And um, we've been in this series called Then Sings My Soul. And just celebrating and leaning into the beauty of some of these songs that um, we've been singing, some of which have been written hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And uh, today, actually, Chris Bell led us beautifully in doxology. And how many of you have heard that song before? Yeah, some of us, right? In, in, in some shape or form, if you have some experience with the church, it's been used for hundreds of years now as like a type of benediction, as just a way to, to kind of depart together uh, in awe of, of who God is. But doxology, what we just sang, was written by this guy up here. Uh, his name is Thomas Ken, and he put pen to paper on this song hundreds of years ago now, 1674. And this little part of doxology that we sing is actually part of this 14-verse long song. Yeah, that is a legit song, right? And it was intended to be sung every morning and every night as a way uh, to, to help lean into the ways in which the greatness of God permeates sort of the everyday rhythms of our life. So verses 1 through 13, which we don't really sing so much, starts with things like um, the fact that we awake from our beds in the power and in the strength of God. And, and there's verses that celebrate um, what it looks like to experience God's presence in the everyday rhythms of life. There's a verse that talks about what, it, what it'll look like to be sincere in our, our conversation. And a yet, a, yet another verse asks God to weave his greatness into sort of the, the, what feels like the littleness of our, of our daily routines. And then he closes with this verse. The very last verse of, that, of this hymn is the one that we sang together. And, and I wish I could do this in like James Earl Jones's voice or like Morgan Freeman. That's what you want. You want, like, you want like Darth Vader reading you hymns, right? But this va- the last verse reads like this. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures near below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Now that verse is like, it's epic, isn't it? And Thomas Ken is connecting this this great God as being somehow interested in the day-to-day rhythms of his life. And he sees this great God as the giver of blessing to us. So the question, I think, that we're left with when we try to see how those two things come together is this. How could a God this great possibly care about, possibly have time for, little old me? And, and it, is a, it is a reasonable question. 
And in the Hebrew Bible, in all of your Bibles, there's a book of poetry called the Psalms. And there's a poet, a psalmist in Psalm 8, who actually asks and addresses this exact question. And we're going to kind of navigate and walk through that together this morning. But I think in order to do so, we have to kind of lay a framework for ourselves of how it is that we even see God. So the question that I want to put before you is, how do you see God? I want everybody to just take like three quick seconds. Don't overthink it. Don't over-spiritualize it. Just take three quick seconds, and I want you to bring to mind whatever visual comes to mind when you think about who God is. Okay, ready? Let's do it. Okay, time's up. Let's see. You've got something in your mind about kind of what God looks like, how you picture God. Now, most of us see God in one of three ways, or some version of one of three ways. We see him maybe first like this, as this, this old man in the sky, right? Long beard, wise, maybe, maybe kind of, maybe even a little fragile because of just how like old and wise he is. Kind of like this sage that we, we come to is um, involved in kind of what he wants to be. Kind of like a, a god on retirement, you know. Wise, the one that you go to for, for advice. Looking down, getting involved when he wants to here or there. Um, sometimes we see God in this other way as this sort of absentee landlord. He started this experiment of earth and humanity and just like someone who like sets up the dominoes and pushes the first one, he pushed those dominoes forward and then he's just kind of hanging out. He kind of knows where the pieces are falling as they go, but he's just watching this thing unfold. Um, not very involved at all. And then some of us see God as this image, this sort of busy CEO right? Sort of the Jeff Bezos of the cosmos, although I think he's not CEO anymore, so forget that. But, you know, just like busy, you know, trying to keep things moving, to keep all the things that we see in the world around us. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Bruce Almighty, you remember like he starts to become aware of all of the different things that like God is trying to manage, and we have this image of God in that way. So it is, is it any wonder that we tend to approach God from this posture of, okay, God, if you're not too busy to hear me and to be for me, then would you show up on my behalf? And if you do, I promise I won't bother you again for a while. I know you're very busy, God. And is it, is it any wonder that we tend to approach God that way? But the scriptures as a whole, and for sure the, the poet who wrote Psalm 8, is inviting us to rethink this posture by unpacking two things. Our view of God and his greatness, and God's view of us. And we're going to unpack God's view of, uh, or our view of God's greatness, and God's view of us. So Psalm 8 is a beautiful piece of poetry, and, uh, but it's also, it's, it's heavy, and there, there's a lot in there. So I'm kind of eager to, to navigate this psalm together. You, you with me? Let's do this together. We'll journey through this. Yes. Okay, good. Let's do it. We're going to start right at the beginning of Psalm 8, and it reads like this. It says, O Lord, and right from the outset, the poet is referring to God as Yahweh. He calls him by name. There's a nearness, there's a familiarity to the way that he addresses God. And he says, O Lord, our Lord. O Yahweh, our Adonai. Which means that he's, he's acknowledging Lord as his ruler. So he says, O Yahweh, our Lord, 
How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. All right, do you see what, what, the, what the poet is doing here? He is declaring the greatness of God. He uses the, the English translation of majestic is actually a pretty good one because it's a word, even in the original language, that's hard to even wrap your head around. Like, what do we use the word majestic for? Not a lot of things, right? It's almost hard. If I asked you to define majestic, it's almost hard to find another word. It's like majestic means majestic, right? It's kind of what he's getting at. I mean, it's, he's just declaring the greatness of God. And he says, you have set your glory above the heavens. Now, glory, there's a good church word, actually a word that we see in a lot of the hymns that we've been taking a look at in this series and that we'll take a look at going forward. Um, glory is this great Bible word that uh, Christians use a lot, but we don't really find it anywhere else, right? I mean, maybe you'll go outside on a nice day and say it's like a glorious day, maybe something like that. But what is it really referring to? And the, the, the word for glory that's translated as glory in the, in the original language is this word havod or kavod. Let's learn a little Hebrew together. How about that? Huh? You want to say the word kavod? Kavod. Okay? And this word shows up over and over. And it's this profound word that's actually referring to more than just this idea of greatness. Because when we think about greatness, we tend to, uh, to characterize or qualify someone's greatness based on what it is that they have done, right? So, you know, my, if, if I were to think that I'm great, it would be because I have done A, B, and C. We look at the, 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 the people that we admire most in, in society, we'll say, Mother Teresa was a, was a great woman because of all that, that she did for others, and we tend to kind of qualify it as it relates to what has done. But this idea of kavod, it's not less than that, but it's more than that. It, it kind of encapsulates this larger picture, the totality of who a person is. So it's who a person is, it's what they've done, um, and it's sort of the, the weightiness of their presence. And that's kind of a, a strange concept when you think about it, right? But we, we, we have some sense of what it means, right? Because if you encounter a sentiment that is heavy in some way, you'll say that, right? You say, ooh, that's heavy. Like there's a weight to that. Or, or there's the gravity of a situation, right? The heaviness, the weight of it. And that's some of the concept that is encapsulated in this word kavod. So when he is, he's acknowledging that God's glory, his weightiness, um, is, is awesome and it's declared by the heavens. So God's glory, his weightiness, is seen in many ways. And one of those ways is by the creativity and the beauty of our world. And the poet gets right into that. Take a look at verse 3. It says, When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, and the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Okay, so this poet is... I see him just laying down, looking out at the stars and feeling something and writing about it. And, uh, you know, I grew up here in Mineola and uh, lived in Queens for a while. And, like, you know, it's kind of hard to see the stars out here. But I, I live in Suffolk County now. And you get a great view of the stars out there. And they fill the night sky. Hey, not to make you jealous, but uh, my wife and I just got back from Jamaica. It was awesome. All right. We, we, we left my 9-year-old and my 11-year-old with, like, a, a jar of peanut butter and a loaf of bread. And we were like, good luck. And, like, we're out of here. And uh, no, no, don't worry. They were well cared for and spoiled rotten by their grandparents for a few days. So we, we uh, went out to Jamaica, and every night we would lay down on, the, on these chairs at the beach, and we would listen to the, the crashing waves of the ocean, 
and we would look out at the night sky. Take a look at this image of the stars. Now that is epic, isn't it? And um, how many of you have had this experience where you've laid out and looked at a night sky that looks something like this? And most of the stars that you see out in the sky are far larger than the sun. One of the brightest stars that you see, Alpha Centauri, it's one of the nearest star systems. It takes 4.3 years for the light that leaves that star to reach your eye when you look at it from Earth. There's a star called Sirius. It's one of the brightest stars in the sky that we can see. It takes nine years for the light to travel from that star to our eyes here on Earth. There's a star. It's the ninth brightest star in the sky. It's called Betelgeuse. It's spelled different than the movie. Get this. It takes 430 years for the light from that star when it leaves its source to reach your eye. And then there's the Orion Nebula. It is 20 light years away. It takes 500 years for the light from that nebulous to reach your eye as we look at it here on Earth. We could bring the lights back up. All of this points to God's glory. Is it any wonder that this guy is laying out there, this poet David, and he's looking at these stars, and he's thinking about God's glory, his weightiness, his kavod. And when you look at these stars, and you look at that picture, you think about a night that you've looked at the stars, what are some words that you would use to describe yourself in comparison to the expanse and the magnificence of those stars? This is a real question. We're in this together now. What are some words that come to mind? That, how do you compare yourself to that? Right? Tiny, small, maybe insignificant in comparison to that? Because seeing and feeling God's greatness somehow informs our view of ourselves, doesn't it? And David, the poet who wrote Psalm 8, felt the exact same way. Because look at the very next thing that he says as we finish up verse 3. He says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what does he ask? He says, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? human beings, that you care for them. So there's that question that we started with. How could you possibly care about little old me? How can this great God of the universe, the God who set that light from the Orion Nebulus on its course 500 years ago before we looked at it last night, care about little old us, this group of people here in this room? It is a... It is a valid question. But as much as the stars in the sky and those crashing waves reveal and reflect the greatness of God, God's kavod, God's weightiness, as much as those things do that, you know what? There is something else that also reveals the glory of God. Anybody know what it is? It's you. It's you me. And these scriptures 
are inviting us to know and understand how God sees you. So let's take a look at that. God's view of you. The poet says this. He says, You have made them, humans, a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. Okay, so there's, there's a word that actually can be a little confusing, kind of hard for us to wrap our heads around. The word angels made us a little bit lower than the angels. It's, it is a bit of a confusing word, and it's hard for me to even wrap my head around uh, because it is something that we don't think about every day, but it's sort of central to a Judeo-Christian understanding and view of the world, that our world is more than just what we can see and sense and touch. It's more than just molecules and cells and atoms bouncing off of one another. That, in fact, our world uh, consists also of a spiritual realm, and that, uh, that is one that is occupied by real divine beings that the Bible calls angels. And, and what the poet is getting at is that here we are on earth, created just a little lower than these divine beings. What he's trying to get at, what the poet is trying to help us understand here, is that humans are a really big deal. That human beings are special in God's sight. That's why it says here, we're, we, human beings, are crowned with kavod, are crowned with honor. And how is that? Well, that's because human beings, you, me, every person on earth has borrowed kavod. Because God, in all of his glory, and all of his majesty, and the things that, that we feel when we sense the reflection of God's glory in the stars and in the moon, that that glory, God's glory, has been put on to human beings, onto you and me. We're the crown jewel of creation. This is how God sees you. And that can be hard to accept that we are crowned with God's glory, right? It's like, this is, uh, this is in your Bibles. <laughs> this is replete all over your Bibles. You're going to find this message. And how is it that we know that? How is it that we know that we're crowned with God, God's glory? Well, it's like, you, you look at what humans do. What do humans do? We, we rule. I don't mean like, yeah, humans rule. I mean, that, that's that too. But, but we, humans rule. Look at what he says here in verse 6. He says, You made them, humans, rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild and the birds of the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. See, Humans don't just exist or inhabit the earth the way other creatures on earth do. Humans recreate in a unique way. You know, one of my favorite professors actually helped me process this really, really well, just in the way that, that he kind of frames it, right? Because he, he got me thinking. Like, I look out into my backyard, and there are these bunnies that dig these holes and, like, make these little homes for themselves. They're trying to escape my dog, but they won't just move out. They stay in my backyard, but they dig these holes. So other animals do stuff like that, right? They, they recreate. They, you know, these bunnies dig these holes. You know, ants create these little ant hills, like, between my pavers. I got to do something about that. So, you know, um, other animals do all of these types of things. But humans, humans make penicillin. And humans build skyscrapers. And they build stadiums and arenas. And then we fill those arenas as, as people get up on a stage and dance for us and read poetry for us. 
and, and you know what? It, it works in the converse too, right? When, when, when gorillas, when a clan of gorillas have some kind of a conflict, some branches and tree limbs in the jungle get broken as a result of that conflict. When human clans have a conflict, entire nations get wiped out. Hundreds of thousands of people lose their lives. How is that? It's because humans rule. Because God created humans in a way that is unique and different than anything else. And in, in modern Western Christianity, we actually have a very low view of humans, right? We tend to think, you know what, humans are mostly like broken and lame and, and, and compromised. And, and this is a situation where something that is true, that is part of the story, has become the entirety of the story. That we've taken something that is true, partly true, and has truth in it, and, and we've made it the entirety of the truth. So as, as David, this poet, is writing Psalm 8, anybody know what passage of Scripture he's thinking about when he's writing this? What page in your Bible he's thinking about when he's writing this, this awesome poem? Page 1, right? He's thinking about Genesis. He's thinking about Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Let's take a look. It reads like this. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds um, in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along in the ground. The story of the Bible begins with this, that there's something about human beings that reflect the Creator in a way that's different than any other creature, that you are made in the image of God, crowned with his kavod and greatness. You know, when we think about an image, an image points to something else, doesn't it? Yeah, have you guys ever been to uh, like the Lincoln Monument, for, or the Lincoln Memorial rather? You ever been there? There's a picture of it, right? So w when you go to the Lincoln Memorial, that statue of Abraham Lincoln, it points us to Abraham Lincoln's kavod, right? It points us to all that he's accomplished. Now, not only does that image point us to him, in some way, see, we, you, look at, you look at that and it doesn't just remind you of what Abraham Lincoln looks like, right? You don't look at that and be like, okay, well, that's his face. So he had a long nose and he had, you know, these are his features. It doesn't just remind you of that. When you stand in front of, of the, the Lincoln Memorial, it, it somehow embodies his, his kavod, right? It somehow embodies. That's why there's all that awesome writing on the wall and you just kind of feel the weight of all that this, this president, that this man accomplished for, for our country. And, and, you know, we are commanded not to make graven images of God, not to make statues of God. The reason for that is because God has already made an image of himself. It's you and it's me. And here we are as humans, given this unique responsibility to, to reflect and embody God's kavod by taking all of the potential of the earth and cultivating it and, and, and creating from it. That's the reason why we make gardens and poetry and skyscrapers and, and all of the amazing things. That's, that's the, the view of what and who humans are, right? We reflect the creator. But in fulfilling that great responsibility of cultivating the earth, what we just read about 
in, um, in Genesis chapter 1. That in fulfilling that great responsibility, humans need to make a lot of different judgment calls and choices, don't they, along the way. And the greatest choice that humans have ever had to make, and the ones that we make every single day in every single thing that we do, is are we going to embrace God as this wise and generous and glorious, weighty creator of all things and submit to his definition of good and evil? Or are we going to redefine good and evil for ourselves? And that's what the story of what happens in the Garden of Eden is all about, if you're familiar, right? It, it's, it's replacing God's definition of good and evil with our own definition of, of good and evil. And the choice that we make every single day is to continually blur the lines between good and evil, most often at the expense of others. Isn't that right? When I choose to redefine good and evil for myself, it comes at the cost of someone else. When an entire people group does that, it comes at the cost of an entire other people group. Doesn't it? And that's our world today. It's one marked by selfishness and greed and corruption at the cost of another. And so we become these sort of tarnished versions of the image of God, of God's image bearers. Imagine like, a, imagine like a, the, the Lincoln Memorial here, if it were just totally vandalized, spray painted, pieces of it broken off, and just, just covered, painted all different colors, and you just barely recognizable anymore. And if you saw the Lincoln Memorial look like that, does it still reflect Abraham Lincoln's kavod? It does not in the way that it was created to. And we all somehow know and have some sense, I think, of the fact that, that we are this sort of this sort of broken, vandalized version of the image of God. That's actually the reason why so often, as Christians as a whole, we have such a low view of humans, that we just generally are lame and broken and compromised. It's because we do have this sense that something's not right. Because as image bearers of God, we're somehow aware that we have tremendous potential that we're not living up to. That we were made to be so much more than we currently are. That we were created to be more generous and more compassionate and more loving and more creative than we currently are. We have this sense that something's not right. This is what it means when Romans chapter 3 says, all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God, right? It's not that all have sinned and failed to follow the Ten Commandments. That's not, what it's That's not what it says. Failing to follow the Ten Commandments or the different things that God asks of us are all ways in which we live out who we are as image bearers of Christ. What, what sin has done is that we have fallen short of being who we were created to be, image bearers of God. So humans are, we are broken and we are compromised. But just as the story didn't start that way, you remember Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 we just looked at? Just the way the story didn't start that way, the story also doesn't end that way. And this is where Jesus comes in. That while we are these, these tainted lesser images of God, Jesus is the, the perfect and complete 
image of God himself. And he comes to earth as this glorious image of God in the flesh. Colossians chapter 1 talks about how he is the perfect image of the invisible God. And Jesus comes to earth as, as the human. He, he comes as, as the best version of myself, the best version of you, the one who, who really bears and reflects God's image in the way that we were created to. Listen, this is the reason why humanity is constantly striving and we're constantly trying to do better. And we, we have this sense that there's more for us out there, that we're more in that idea. It's because eternity is in the heart of every human being, whether you follow Jesus as you sit here today or not. And the reason we feel that sense is because we know that there is more. And Jesus came to earth as this perfect and, and this version of ourselves that, that we long to be, who we were meant to be. And Jesus, as this perfect and complete image of God, he lived the life that we uh, were meant to live as image bearers uh, of God. And, he, and he's falsely accused and he dies a death that we deserved for the ways that we vandalized ourselves. And in, in so doing, as he has done that, he took upon himself all of the consequences and the, the, the vandalism that we've done to ourselves through our own selfishness. And then he rises again from the, from the grave, just like we were singing about earlier. And in his resurrection, he has accomplished for you and for me the restoration of the original, unvandalized image bearer of God that you were created to be. This is the reason why the sense that, you know what, humans are like mostly broken and, and, and you know, just compromised and lame. It's just, the, it's just the middle of the story. The story didn't start that way and the story doesn't end that way. What the gospel accomplishes for you and for me is that Jesus came and he lived the life that we should have lived as the perfect image bearer of God and he died on a cross and just bore the, the consequences of all the ways that we vandalize ourselves as God's image bearers. And then he rose again. And what happened as he being the very first person over whom death did not have the last word, that he now offers that to you and he offers that to me. That death no longer has the last word over us. And he restores and renews who we were created to be in the first place. He takes that vandalism and that graffiti and that spray paint that we've put all over this image of God. And he cleans it off. And he restores and refinishes the edges. And he makes us bright and shine as the people that we were created to be all along. Guys, that's awesome. This is who you are. In the good news of Jesus Christ. And, 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 it, and it flips on its head the narrative where we come before God with this sense of, oh, you know, is there something I can do, some way that I should clean myself up a little bit more so that I could be worthy and come before God's presence? It flips that narrative on its head that God is not this busy CEO that needs to find time for you. But in fact, he cares for you and he, he, he created us to bear his image. So then the question becomes, why doesn't it feel that way? Like if I'm an image bearer of God and the good news of Jesus Christ is that now he's restored me and he's taken away all of the vandalism and, and the ways that I've screwed myself up. Why doesn't it feel that way? 
Why do I still struggle with anger and addiction and um, selfishness or illness even? The promise of the resurrection, of the, the, the resurrected Jesus, the fact that now his life and the newness of life is now offered to you, that we are now new creatures, renewed creatures. The promise that has been given to us is that we have been given a new life and a new heart, and we've been given it from the inside out. So what that means is this. If something is from the inside out, it means there's light that shines. You've been given a new heart and a new a new light. This is the promise of the gospel. And what God is in the process of doing is taking all sort of the layers of the, the gunk that still kind of covers this new heart that is yours. And he's, he's breaking it off layer by layer so that the light of what it means to be an image bearer of God can shine through. And we can live and be the people that we were created to be. This is, this is what, in theology, they call sanctification. It is God's process of changing us, of taking those layers of gunk and removing them so that the light of God shines through from this new heart that we are given in the gospel. And so how can God, this great God, care about little old me? It's because you are a reflection of God's greatness. You are a reflection of his glory, that you're special. And so now we approach God with confidence. We approach God not asking a CEO to spare us five minutes from his busy schedule, but knowing that you are welcome into God's kingdom and invited to allow for him to reshape you to look more like who you already are, an image bearer of God. People marked by generosity and love and compassion and justice. Marked by God's character. And as he reshapes us, we experience the blessings of God because we reflect the greatness of God. And I'll, I'll close with this, guys. Here's the amazing part. We don't even get to just be image bearers of God as an end in and of itself. It's not like that's it. Like we... That's cool, it's a great thing, and it just, it just ends, ends there. That we are bearers of his presence. We are bearers of the image of God to one another and to the world around us. You know, Jesus, when he was on earth as the perfect image bearer of God, everything that he touched was experiencing God's character right? There's stories of how someone, uh, a woman who was ill just came and like touched his robe and she was healed. And he was going around healing people and doing, and anything that he touched, everything that he came into contact with was exposed to God's goodness and his generosity and his character. And here we are, renewed, restored image bearers of God who now have this privilege of bearing his presence to the world around us. So what does that look like for you? You know, maybe it's, it's, it's when you're at the office around the water cooler with your friends. That's like a really cliche example, isn't it? But, okay, you're, you're at the office and you're, you're at the water cooler around with your friends and, and maybe it is just you being a, a non-anxious presence in that place, in that moment, in, in the tenseness of that dialogue. Maybe it's you um, reaching out and caring for the person that's, that's in need, putting another's needs uh, before your own and extending generosity and love and care to your neighbors or, or to those who need a place to stay or whatever it might be. We are bearers 
of the presence of Jesus, bearers of God's image to the world around us. So if, if, if nothing else, if you leave here with nothing else this morning, please know this, that you bear the image of God. And if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, maybe you have this sense that things, that things aren't right, right? That you're not living up to who you were created to be. I think we've all had that sense in some way. But Jesus, the, the perfect image of God, he died and rose again to restore you to who you were created to be. And if you do follow Jesus, please know that we don't cower before God begging for scraps. That because of what the gospel has accomplished, we are image bearers of God and we come to him with confidence that you are restored that you are new, and now we're free to live like it. We can come to God with confidence and say, God, I am yours, and you are mine. And I don't need to wonder how you could pay attention to little old me. Because you look at me, and you see the crown jewel of your creation, an image bearer of yourself. And with that in mind, from that perspective, we say this, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures near below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.